Greetings, fellow travelers, vagrants, explorers, wildlanders, and welcome to episode 49 of the Retro Wildlands. My name is Nomad, and this is my gaming podcast where I like to share my thoughts and experiences with a video game that I have discovered or rediscovered while roaming the gaming wildlands. Thank you very much for tuning into the show today. If this is your first time listening to the Retro Wildlands, I am really glad you found us, and I hope you have a great time taking part in our expedition into the gaming wildlands. If you're a returning guest, welcome back. It's always great reuniting with new and old friends. I know Dee Dee, our canine expedition leader, especially loves when everybody gets together. For one thing, it gives him an excuse to sniff some legs. But more so, he gets to partake in all the pre-expedition revelry. Everyone saying hi, shaking hands, maybe even throwing some hugs around before ultimately grabbing a drink and heading out towards the campfire. And Didi loves being right in the middle of it all. It actually makes me think about how some of you might have felt back in the day when playing the video game that we're going to be talking about today. Personally, I love meeting new friends, but there's something to be said about reuniting with old friends or family. There's something warm, comforting, and even safe about it. It's like how some holiday dinners probably went for some of you. You walk into the kitchen of your grandmother's house, and you're greeted by her warmly. In the kitchen, you have your Aunt Sally, who runs up to you and gives you the best hugs, and maybe there's one of your cousins there that you used to play video games with over the summer. When you make it to the living room, you spot Uncle Jack, who's three beers in and quickly points out how much heavier you look compared to last year, and wonders if you're still driving that piece of shit Ford Tempo. Still, you can't help but smile and give him a hearty handshake as he offers you a drink. That interaction right there makes me think of games that we know and love and often go back to for some old-fashioned comfort. Games like the original Super Mario Bros. on the Nintendo, for instance. But over time, your family circle can expand in unexpected ways, and this makes gatherings really interesting. Like when your aunt remarries and decides that it's okay that her new husband likes the wrong football team. This can create some awkward moments, the kind where you just look in awe and wonder to yourself, just what the hell was Aunt Edna thinking? I mean, her husband seems like a nice guy and all, but something is just weird here. Which is exactly how I feel when I think about the video game that we're going to be talking about today. On today's episode, we're checking out a video game that I feel is often looked at as the outsider. It comes from a place of familiarity, but when you squint at it and really look at it, especially when compared to the rest of the games in the franchise, it's easy to feel just a little off. Maybe even a little awkward. It's a game that didn't just break an established formula, it completely changed what we as gamers were used to up to that point. And it wasn't until a few years later that we learned exactly why that was. Today, on the Retro Wildlands, I'm going to share with you my first-time thoughts and experiences with Super Mario Bros. 2 for the Nintendo Entertainment System. Mario 2 was a game that I have very vague memories playing when I was little. 
I don't think I got very far, but the sights and sounds always stuck with me over the years. I remember it being a fun game, but very, very different from the original Mario that I used to play at my grandma's house. Instead of stomping on Goombas and burning every enemy in sight with a fire flower, I was pulling vegetables out of the ground and tossing them around. Even the music was very eccentric. But of all the things that I remember, being chased by those creepy masks anytime I would find a key would always stick with me and find a way to invade my nightmares. But it was okay, though. Being able to play as four different characters, all with a unique style of play, really made the game enjoyable, and I loved trying to get as far as I could before inevitably losing all of my lives and all of my continues. Once I got access to Super Mario 3 on the NES, and again later on the Super Nintendo thanks to Super Mario All-Stars, I might have dabbled in Mario 2 here and there, but I largely left it behind. Mario 3 went back to the familiar Mario formula, and it welcomed me warmly in its embrace. The Goombas and Koopas were back, and the music was much more whimsical and Mario-like. The power-ups I was missing were back, and Mario 3 had a pile of brand new ones, too. As I got older, I was content leaving Mario 2 behind, but ever since I've started to go back and play older games I missed out on, especially for this podcast, I knew I needed to go back to Super Mario 2 and give it another go. Over the last year or so, I learned a lot about this game's development history as well, and honestly, I had no idea that this game was just a reskin of another game on the Famicom. However, there was one question above all others that I wanted to answer. After all these years and after being branded as the quote-unquote odd Mario out, was Super Mario Bros. 2 a fun game to play today? Well, my friends, I finally sat down with this game as an adult and played through to the end. I'm excited to talk to you about this game and give you my old man perspective on a game that's about as strange as my kids cleaning their rooms without being asked. Now, if you're new to the show, I like to take some time to chat it up with you all a little bit and give you all a peek behind the scenes here in the Retro Wildlands before I get into the game talk portion of the episode itself. Depending on what's on my mind, I like to talk about what's going on with the podcast itself, what games I might be playing, what's going on in my personal life, any projects I'm working on, and whatever else I feel like blabbing about. I'll also read and respond to any comments I received about Super Mario Bros. 2 when I put a call out for them on our social media pages. Now, if none of this sounds interesting to you and you're just here for my thoughts on Mario 2, No worries, you can skip ahead about 12 to 15 minutes and you should get into the game talk. There should also be timestamps in the show notes so you can see exactly where you need to go if you don't want to fumble around with your little podcast slider doohickey thing on your podcast app. But feel free to stick around. I'll be talking about some gaming-related shenanigans, and you'll get to hear your fellow Wildlander sound off about Mario 2, so it should be a good way to get the ball rolling. So, with that, let's get into our opening segment that I like to call Campfire Ketchup.
2023 is behind us, and we are now rushing headfirst into 2024, my friends. I mentioned it last episode, but it's worth mentioning again. 2023 seemed like it just flew by for me, and when I look back on it, it's mostly a big blur for me. However, looking back, it really was a pretty good year, all things considered. My family is healthy and doing well. I still have a job that pays me well enough to keep a roof over our heads. Didi and Dexter, our two little chihuahuas, are healthy as well, and I've played a decent amount of new-to-me video games, and despite how busy it has been around my neck of the woods, every now and then I'm still pumping out an episode of the podcast here and there. I really can't ask for much more than that if I'm being honest. I'm excited to jump headfirst into 2024 and keep moving forward with the show and continue to network with you awesome people listening and the really awesome creators that I've met this past year. That's actually one of the biggest things that have brought me joy this past year. I love interacting with people over on our social media pages, chatting with people over on some of the Discord servers that I'm lucky enough to be a part of, and especially meeting some great people in person. I continue to be humbled as people give me their time, whether it's to chat about games or or talk about content creation with me, and I'm looking forward to more of that this year. Needless to say, if you've ever taken the time to interact with me or even just say, hey, I'm really glad that you took the time, and I'm looking forward to more interactions this year. I think we all say this every new year, but this year is going to be the year, my friends. Thanks again for being here and taking this ride with me. So beyond all that, 2023 was a big year for my video game collection of all things. I haven't gone balls deep in game collecting, but my physical game collection has probably quadrupled in size this past year. I'm not sure if I ever went into granular detail with what I'm actively collecting for, but I mainly have physical games for the PlayStation 2, 3, and 4, PlayStation Vita, Nintendo Switch, Nintendo DS, and 3DS. I'm most actively collecting for the PlayStation Portable, and while I don't think I'll ever complete it, I would love to have a complete North American game collection. The PSP is my favorite system, and I think it has an underappreciated library of games. General rule of thumb for my gaming collection is that I don't have any games in it that I don't want to actually play. Making the time to play the games that I have is going to be challenging, I'm sure, but aside from the PSP, which I'm collecting for just to collect for, that's the golden rule that governs my collecting habits. It's a big reason why I've slowed down a bit. I have almost everything I want to actually play one day. But I'll still check out a few local retro game stores and get something from them if I can support them, and I'm actively saving up money to use when I go to conventions this year. I think this is a good strategy to make sure that I'm not just spending gobs of money on things I don't need, and save for the bigger holy grails that I'm after. Now, while I consider the PSP my favorite console, I've really gotten into the Nintendo Switch over the last year, and it's quickly becoming my favorite modern console. The portability has been a big thing for me, and I'm trying to catch up on some Nintendo exclusives that I missed out on. A couple of weeks ago, I decided to finally get into Breath of the Wild, and I am having a really good time with it. 
I highly doubt I'll feature it on the show or even our YouTube channel in any capacity since many, many other people have probably talked this game to death at this point, but I've wanted to play it since I got my Switch and I'm finally taking the plunge. And even though they're recent, I've been enjoying my time with Super Mario Wonder and the new Super Mario RPG. As I record these words, I officially retired Mario RPG after completing the game and finishing all but one of the post-game boss battles. It was an excellent game, and really hit the nail on the head for me. So yeah, the Switch is still going strong for me. Still though, even though I have a ton to play, I've been itching to get a current generation console. The time for that, though, has finally come, as my wife was good to me this Christmas, and I can finally say that I have a current generation game console again because she got me a PlayStation 5. While I'm working through retro games for the podcast, I still love me a good old-fashioned modern gem, and the PlayStation 5 is a system I've been wanting to get my hands on ever since it launched. If you happen to be following the show on social media, you'll probably have known this already, and you were able to see what else I got with the system as well. At the time of this recording, I only have three PlayStation 5 games. The new Call of Duty Modern Warfare 3 came with the console, and I've been playing a bit of multiplayer on it, as well as a bit of the campaign. Reviews for the campaign have been so-so, and I have to agree, it's probably my least favorite out of all the campaigns I've played so far, and I really dig COD campaigns. Multiplayer and zombies have been fun enough, but I don't think this game is going to have too much staying power for me personally. Other than Call of Duty, I did get my hands on a physical copy of the Dead Space remake, and I am excited to play through that. The original Dead Space is one of my favorite horror games, and I have been dying to check out the remake. And outside of that, I decided to grab a physical copy of Hogwarts Legacy as well. While my wife plays the occasional game here and there, I was hoping this one might make her want to play it a little bit as well. I'm sure I'm going to like it, even though I'm not the biggest Harry Potter fan. So needless to say, I'm a very happy and a very lucky man to be in the position where I have most everything I want from a gaming standpoint at my disposal. I still remember being young, and my biggest problem being that I only had two or three games to play at one time, and I had to play those to death until I maybe got another one for my birthday or another one for Christmas. Now my biggest problem is deciding what game I want to play and actually sticking with it. Ah, what a time to be a gamer. Now real quick, since I mentioned posting my PlayStation 5 on social media, I just wanted to remind everyone that the Retro Wildlands is on social media if you want to give us a follow. We are on all the major platforms like Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, slash X, Threads, and YouTube, so if you want to hook up with me on those platforms, just search at Retro Wildlands and you should find us. It's a great way to spice up your timelines and feeds with some gaming goodness, but it's also the one way that you can interact with the show when I put a call out for comments around the game that I'll be covering in a future episode. Alright, I think that's really all I wanted to chat about this go-around. Let's transition to the reason that you're all here today. It's time to talk about Super Mario Bros. 2. 
Brando, who wrote into the show over on our Twitter page, is going to start off our community comments today. He said, Played it a ton back when I was a kid. I knew it was weird, but was too young to understand the story behind it. Still think it's a great game and revisit it regularly. Of all the descriptive words in the English language, weird is probably the most common way I've heard people describe this game, and rightfully so. Not only is the gameplay starkly different from its predecessor, the graphics and even the music are just off enough to help solidify this game's unique aesthetic. Most people already know why, but it comes down to the game's interesting development history. There isn't much of an actual story here, but I agree. While it took its time to grow on me, Super Mario Bros. 2 is a good game, all things considered, and I'm probably going to revisit this one from time to time as well. If for no other reason than to keep pelting Birdo with eggs, because that is never not satisfying. Thanks for dropping us a line, Brando. I appreciate the comment. William dropped us a comment over on our Facebook page and said, One of my most vivid childhood memories comes from Mario 2. There were lots of kids on my block, and we all played Nintendo. When I was about six, some kids came over because they couldn't get past a part in Mario 2. They were at wart and couldn't land any vegetables in his mouth. I went over and beat him for them. 35 years later, I'm still oddly proud of that. Hell yeah, William, I'd be proud of that too if I were you. Wart is the final boss in this game, and when I made it to him, I was pretty stuck myself. I found myself throwing vegetables at him, but nothing was happening. I was getting pretty frustrated, and I ended up tossing one in his open mouth by accident. At that point, it was like that scene from Independence Day where the heroes figure out how to bring down all the alien spaceships. With that one lucky vegetable throw, I now knew how to bring that son of a bitch down. I am pretty impressed that six-year-old you was able to take down Wart and be the hero of the neighborhood, man. Continue to wear that badge proudly. Unbuckled Cape 10 reached out over on our Twitter page with a comment of their own and said, I played this on the GBA a lot as a kid. Great replayability with the four playable characters. Also, the World 1-1 song lives rent-free in my head. I didn't know Super Mario 2 was revamped a little on the Game Boy Advance until somewhat recently when I saw it on Nintendo Online. Super Mario Advance is the name of the game, and the Game Boy Advance version brings a little more to the table as far as gameplay and presentation goes. I'm told it is the definitive way to play Mario 2, and I am looking forward to checking it out one day myself. That is awesome that you were able to enjoy this as a kid back in the day. And we'll touch on it more later, but being able to play as four different characters with distinctly different playstyles is arguably the best part about this entire gameplay experience. And you are 100% right about that World 1-1 tune. Some may say this game isn't much of a Mario game, but there is nothing more Mario than that tune. And we're going to be hearing a decent amount of that tune today on the show. Believe that. Thank you for taking the time to write into the show, Unbuckled. I appreciate it. Chris Copeline, one of the hosts of the Retro Hangover podcast, 
tossed in his two cents about Mario 2 over on our Twitter page and said, This game never really appealed to me. It isn't a bad game by any means, but it wasn't quote-unquote Mario. We all know the story now, but the game being enough of a departure was enough for me to bounce hard off it after the first level even now. Shruggy guy emoji. <laughs> I was in the same boat as you for a while, Chris. Mario 2 just never made me excited to play it. I dabbled as a kid, but never really spent enough time with the game to really form an opinion. Over the years, it just looked, well, weird, and anything but what I was used to when it came to Mario. Truth be told, I was almost considering passing this game up altogether today just because it just didn't gel with me. It wasn't until I made myself play it did it warm up to me over time. I almost had to forget that this was a Mario game altogether and play it for what it is, a reskin of another game. Only then did it really start to click for me and I found a decent amount of joy in my experience. While I wasn't able to squash Goombas under my large plumber boots, I did enjoy tossing large vegetables at my foes and watching them fall away after a well-placed hit and even jumping on the backs of my enemies in order to traverse parts of the level. Thank you very much for chiming in, Chris. I always appreciate your thoughts. Curtis shared his memories of Super Mario 2 over on our Facebook page. He said, I remember playing this game at a friend's house when I was a kid. I remember being really excited to play because I loved Mario. I mean, who didn't love Mario? When we popped it in and, as player 2, I was super excited to be able to choose my character. I went with Toad and we started playing. And then I was immediately confused. This didn't seem like Mario. Pulling carrots out of the ground? Why? Picking up enemies to throw? Okay, that was pretty cool. But when it was my turn, I just couldn't really click with the game. I only ever played it at my friend's house because I couldn't bring myself to use a precious game rental on that instead of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Yeah, I think that was more or less my initial memory of Mario 2 when I played it as a kid. Being able to select who I wanted to play as, either Mario, Luigi, Toad, or the Princess, was absolutely awesome and I love trying to figure out who was good at what. But that's about as far as it went for me too. I couldn't get on board with what this game was trying to be and as a young kid, I often gravitated towards Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles as well. My grandparents got me TMNT, and I would play the crap out of it. Mario 2, be damned. If I was in your shoes, I wouldn't have wasted a rental on Mario 2 either. But I will say, now that I've played it and really put some time into it, I could see myself passing on the Turtles for this game. It took a while, but it really grew on me in the end, and it can be pretty fun, all things considered. Thanks a bunch for sharing that story with the community, Curtis. I really appreciate hearing from you. The List Off podcast wrote into the show over on our Twitter page and left us this comment. Super Mario Bros. 2 is probably the most underrated Mario game and one of the better 2D Mario games. I appreciate how Nintendo took risks with their early sequels like this and Zelda 2. 
I know it's just a reskin of Doki Doki Panic, but when it was released in North America, it was new and refreshing. I'll certainly touch on how this game is a reskin of Doki Doki Panic from overseas, but when I replayed Mario 2 recently, I was actually thinking of Zelda 2 for a little bit. Sure, Mario 2 is a reskin for reasons that we'll get into, but Nintendo did ultimately take a risk by changing up the formula a little bit, and I have to commend them for that in the grand scheme. Some of the best games are ones where developers took a chance and tried something different. Not all of these projects were bangers by any means, but it gave us different perspectives and ways to play with characters and settings that we were used to. While I personally don't rank Super Mario 2 super high on the list of 2D platformers, it is pretty solid, and I do agree that this game is quite underrated. I think a lot of people give this game a pass based on the fact that it's so odd and outside the norm. And that's a real shame, because we all know you shouldn't judge a book by its cover, and you certainly shouldn't judge a video game by its box art. My friends at the List Off Podcast, thank you very much for writing into the show. And our last comment on Super Mario 2 comes from Adam, the host of the Remember the Game podcast. He spoke up on our Retro Wildlands Twitter page and said, I think it was weird back in the day, but it aged like wine. Love playing this one these days. I think that's the perfect comment to close out this section because of all the things I took away from Mario 2, I agree that this game aged remarkably well for a 35-year-old title. It felt weird to play when I was younger, and I still think it's weird today, but Mario 2 holds up well, and I had a genuinely good time playing through this game. It was fun navigating around each level looking for secrets and finding ways past obstacles. Even if I'd still get the heebie-jeebies any time I grab a key and that damn mask starts following me around. Thanks a bunch for writing into the show, Adam. I appreciate you reading some of my comments on your podcast. Now I get to read one of yours on mine. As Darth Vader said to Obi-Wan, The circle is now complete. Thank you very much, man. I appreciate you. Originally released in September 1988, when I was just four years old, Super Mario Bros. 2 was the sequel to the original Super Mario on the Nintendo. While some sequels may stick close to the original in terms of presentation and gameplay, Mario 2 was drastically different from the original. Whereas the original had you moving from left to right towards the end of the level and allowed players to stomp on the heads of Goombas and Koopas, Super Mario 2 allowed the player to move all over the stage, and even introduced some verticality to its levels. Further, you were no longer able to stomp on your enemies to dispatch them. You had to jump on top of them, pick them up, and toss them at other enemies to defeat them. Or you had to pull a vegetable out of the ground and toss that at your enemy to take it down. What in the hell was this game, and why was it so drastically different? And is it a fun game to play after 35 years? Well, my friends, that is what we are here to find out. So let's get ready, Wildlanders. Grab a handful of vegetables, a pow block, and choose your favorite character. 
It's going to take some expert timing, skillful jumping, and masterful aim as we move through 20 levels of increasing chaos and difficulty. Mario has descended into the dream world, and the only way we're going to get him out is by pushing forward and defeating the evil Wart, the master of this weird and wild world. Can it be done? The answer to that question is going to depend on whether or not you like your vegetables. things like movies and video games, there's one thing that seems to be true more often than not. When a successful product is developed, there is naturally a desire to capture that momentum and success by creating a sequel. Fans typically want more of their favorite thing, and many filmmakers and game developers are happy to deliver. A lot of times, this can spawn some pretty awesome follow-ups to some of our favorite franchises that are just as good or even better than the original. Aliens, Die Hard 2, Die Harder, Terminator 2, and Star Wars The Empire Strikes Back are some great examples of film sequels in my mind. Whereas Street Fighter 2, Streets of Rage 2, Resident Evil 2, Silent Hill 2, and I argue Zelda 2 are some good examples of video game sequels that matched or surpassed their original outings. Back in 1985, a little video game called Super Mario Bros. was released for the Nintendo Entertainment System and it was quite popular to say the least. If I'm reading the data I found correctly, over 40 million units of Super Mario Bros. were sold worldwide when it was available on the market. It was especially popular in North America, where 29 of the 40 million came from. Fans eagerly gobbled up the game and its fun challenge. Nintendo, of course, was more than happy to deliver a follow-up, but those of us in North America would ultimately be given an experience that wasn't quite what we were expecting. At least, that's how I felt when I played Super Mario Bros. 2 for the first time. And while the development history might be common knowledge for most people, there was a point in time where I had no idea why Super Mario 2 was so different from the original. Ultimately, though, it turned into a pretty fun game, all things considered, and is considered today to be one of the best retro video games out there. That was 35 years ago. The questions I've had over the years have always been, what makes this game so special? Why was it so different for us here in North America? And is this game still fun to play today? Well, in order to answer some of those questions, I think we're going to need to dive deep on this one. Super Mario 2 was much more than a sequel to a beloved video game. 
While I normally don't go into a game's development history on the podcast, it is almost impossible not to touch on Mario 2's history since it will help paint a picture as to why we have what we have. Plus, there might still be someone out there who may not know the full story. I mean, I had no idea until a few years ago myself. And beyond the development, Mario 2 has some great gameplay mechanics to talk about. And even further beyond that, Mario 2's influence on the franchise is undeniable. I'd like to touch on it all, so if you're settled in, let's start peeling back the layers of Super Mario Bros. 2 and see exactly what it is that we're working with. So, what is this game? Super Mario Bros. 2 is a side-scrolling platformer that stars the one and only Super Mario, and allows you as the player to choose between Mario, his brother Luigi, Toad, and the princess to play as during your adventure. The object of the game is pretty simple. You need to make your way through seven worlds, each with three stages to traverse except for the very last world, and eventually come face to face with the game's big bad, Wart. Bowser, or King Koopa, is absent from this game, and the enemies that Mario and his pals are going to come across during this adventure are like nothing he or we as players have seen up to this point before. Not only are the enemies different this go-around, the level designs are something new as well. Originally, you could go from left to right, and you were unable to backtrack. Now, in Mario 2, you can backtrack and there's even a decent amount of verticality to the levels, which is the biggest and most complicated word I get to say today. I'm sure it was pretty mesmerizing back in the day. There's a lot of new things here to get into, and most older gamers probably have a basic idea right off the bat. Lots of the changes were pretty drastic, all things considered. But was this Nintendo just expanding on the original game and creating something new and unique? Or was something else going on here? Well, in the case of Mario 2 for us Westerners in North America, it was definitely something else. So before we dive into the game itself, we have to talk a bit about the development history behind this game. And like I mentioned before, I'm sure most seasoned gamers know the surface-level history behind this game, but I'm sure there are still a few people out there who don't know. And like I said, I was one of them at one point and found some of this stuff fascinating. So this section is more for you who are not in the know. So I think it's safe to say that most of us have probably played the original Super Mario Bros. on the NES, or at the very least have seen it played. Like I mentioned earlier, this game was a smash hit that sold over 40 million copies in its lifetime. The same team that designed the first Super Mario went to work on the second, and Shigeru Miyamoto, the man who created Mario, got pretty involved again. The development team went to work designing new levels and altering existing ones and quickly fell in love with how difficult and challenging they were. The thought was, if skilled and gifted players had a fun time with the original Mario game, they would absolutely love this new and challenging sequel. So with that mindset, Miyamoto and the team got to work. When development began, the intention was to focus on bringing the game to life on the Famicom Disk System in Japan. 
I personally don't know much about the Famicom disc system, but I do know that Nintendo wanted to really push sales of that system in Japan, and I assume the idea was to eventually get it overseas. When development started for Mario 2, the intention was to put it on this system, and use it to help drive sales of the system. Despite all this, however, the development team wasn't given a lot of time to develop Mario 2. Shigeru Miyamoto was balancing a couple other projects at the time, mainly the development of The Legend of Zelda, and took a step back from Mario 2. It all came together pretty well, though. Development only took about four months since the team was able to retool a lot of levels using the original's existing engine and designs. Mario 2 looked a lot like the original when it was all said and done, and it was pushed out on the Famicom disc system. Fun fact that I read, Mario 2 allowed the player to play as either Mario or Luigi, and if you chose Luigi, you could tell the developers made him unique. He was able to jump incredibly high compared to his brother, but his movement traction was awful. It was almost like he was on ice all the time. This would officially mark the first time Luigi was given a unique trait, and where he started to, ever so slightly, step out of his brother's shadow. Now, the development team really took to making challenging levels to heart, because this game was hard as hell. Not only were levels designed to require more precise platforming, enemies were more aggressive, and there were even levels where the wind was blowing which would really screw up your jumps. But despite that, Mario 2 went on to be the best-selling game for the Famicom Disk System, so naturally the next step was to get it overseas to America. However, as soon as it was tested here in America, it was pretty evident that this game was not gonna cut it. For one, it was incredibly difficult, and while some might find that to be a great and welcome challenge, the majority of players would not get enjoyment out of this. Further, the game looked and sounded exactly like the first one. It was determined that it was highly unlikely that Mario 2 would appeal to Western audiences, and it could potentially turn players off on the system altogether. Plus, porting the game from the disc format to the NES cartridge wasn't going to be practical from a business standpoint either. Something needed to happen, and happen fast, and while Nintendo recognized the need to revamp Mario 2, they were overwhelmed with other games and other projects. That's when the idea came to them. Why create a brand new game when an older one could be reworked into what they needed? It was practically genius! Yumi Kojo Doki Doki Panic, which released on the Famicom back in 1987 in Japan, was selected to be the game that would save the day. Doki Doki Panic was a game that was made in conjunction with Fuji TV and Nintendo, and was used to promo the Yumi Kojo Media Tech Expo. I'll let you do your own research into Doki Doki Panic if you want, but in a nutshell, it was a game that starred four characters, and each of them were the mascot of the tech show. When Doki Doki Panic was chosen, the main message that Miyamoto had for the team was, make sure it's Mario-like, and as long as it's fun, go nuts. 
Doki Doki Panic's main gameplay mechanic was having the player pick up and throw items, or use stackable items to traverse levels vertically. All this remained and was used as the main gameplay loop for the new and revised Super Mario 2. The four characters in Doki Doki Panic were replaced with Mario, Luigi, Toad, and the Princess, and other Mario things were added to the game, such as mushrooms, stars, and coins. The hype for this game was real, and in their very first ever issue of Nintendo Power Magazine, Super Mario Bros. 2 was featured right on the cover. Now, Super Mario Bros. 2 was not a complete right-click save-as sort of port. There were a decent amount of changes made to Mario 2. I'm not going to cover them all here, but I encourage you to look up this game's history online if you're curious. And to round out the development talk, the original Super Mario 2 that was considered too hard for us Westerners did eventually make it overseas. When Nintendo released Super Mario All-Stars on the Super Nintendo, they included a title called Super Mario Bros. The Lost Levels. This game is actually the original Japan version of Mario 2 and, having played it myself, I can confidently say, yes. This game is stupidly hard, and if this was released when I was a kid, I would tell my parents that I would rather scratch my eyes out with forks than play this game. So that's Super Mario Bros. 2's development history in a pretty condensed nutshell. Seriously, if stuff like this interests you, head over to the internet and do some article reading and video watching. It can be fun learning where our favorite games came from. So now that we've talked about that, it's time to dive into the Western release Super Mario Bros. 2 ourselves and check this game out. When I replayed the game for the podcast, I played the original Nintendo version, so that's the version I'm going to be speaking to today. While Mario 2 was made available to play in a couple different ways, the main gameplay experience is more or less the same. So speaking of, let's look at this game's presentation and gameplay, and the best way to do that is to slide the game cartridge into our NES and hit that power button. As soon as we power our NES on, the game immediately boots up and we're shown the title screen. Super Mario Bros. 2 is displayed on screen, and if we wait just a few seconds, the logo vanishes and we're given a few lines of text to explain the story. When Mario opened a door after climbing a long stair in his dream, another world spread before him and he heard a voice call for help to be freed from a spell. After awakening, Mario went to a cave nearby and to his surprise, he saw exactly what was in his dream. That is the abridged version of the story. If you're lucky enough to have the instruction manual or you look it up online, you can read a few paragraphs of story setup. It's nothing earth-shattering, but I always enjoy reading those kinds of things. Especially when I was younger. I mean, nowadays, when we go to the bathroom, we have our cell phones, but back in the day, we had video game instruction manuals, am I right? Or maybe a bottle of shampoo if it was in reaching distance. <laughs> anyway, the instruction manual gives a little bit more background, but it specifically calls out the game's big bad guy. Bowser, King Koopa, or whatever you want to call him, is absent from this one. This time, we're going after a giant toad known as Wart. 
Wart is looking to take over the dream world known as Subcon, and it's going to be up to Mario, Luigi, Toad, and the princess to navigate the world of Subcon, find Wart, and send him packing. How are they going to do this, though? Using the incredible power of... Vegetables. Yes, you heard what I said. Vegetables are what's going to be used to save the world. The funny thing is, the instruction manual talks about this, and unless you read this, you might not know how to defeat Wart when you finally come across him. According to the manual, Wart hates vegetables. We'll have to keep that in mind because that will be important later. After the on-screen text finishes up, we're told to press the start button. Once we do that, we're taken to the next screen and we need to make an important decision. We need to choose which character we want to play as. Even though I don't have many memories of playing this game when I was little, this part here was probably one of my favorites. I loved trying to decide who I wanted to play as because each character has their own playstyle. When it comes to the gameplay, your character is going to be more or less doing three basic things. Jumping, picking up objects, and running with said object. Each character does these three things with varying proficiency, and some are better at things than others. Mario is the most balanced character out of the bunch. He has decent jump height, runs decent while holding something, and is the second fastest character to pick up objects. Luigi's biggest advantage over everyone else is his jump height. Mario 2 is the first game that really set Luigi apart from his brother. He's depicted as being taller than Mario, but what really stands out is his ability to jump high. In Mario 2, he'll kick his little feet while he does it too. While Luigi's jump speed is on the slower side, his jump height really helps him navigate over obstacles with relative ease. However, he's slow to pick up objects and pretty slow while he runs with something in his hands. Moving on, Toad is the powerhouse of the group. He's constantly hitting the gym, and while you can't see it in his pixelated form, Toad is swole as hell. His biggest strength is how fast he picks up objects, and he maintains his top speed even when holding something. However, his drawback is he frequently skips leg day because he has the shortest jump height. While you would think a Mario game would require someone with decent jumping ability, I always felt like Toad's ability to pick things up quickly was the better advantage, especially since you're going to need to pick things up and throw them as a way to attack enemies. Lastly, we have the Princess. While she's the weakest character and takes quite a bit of time picking things up, she has a pretty unique jumping ability. Her overall jumping height is only slightly higher than Toad's, but what makes the princess special is her ability to float in the air for about a second and a half. All you need to do is press and hold the jump button again while she's in the air and she'll hover. It's a fantastic way to avoid lots of obstacles and keep the princess out of danger. While I've seen some healthy debates online as to which character is the quote-unquote best, I personally don't think there is one character that is better than any other, really. 
It all comes down to how you want to play the game. While I personally enjoyed playing as all the characters and experiencing the game differently with each of them, I did favor playing as Toad more often than the rest. I really enjoyed his ability to pick up items quick because I tended to attack enemies aggressively whenever I had the chance. The best way to avoid enemies and obstacles is to physically remove them in my mind. However, I loved using the princess almost as much just to see how quickly I could beat a level by having her float over and around most threats. At the end of the day, it comes down to personal preference, but I encourage you to play with all the characters and see who you like the best. For our purposes right now, let's select Mario and jump right into the game. After we make our selection, the screen shows us that we're about to enter World 1, Stage 1, and the game officially begins. The game opens with Mario falling from the sky after going through a red door. Right away, the game is showing us the verticality elements of this game as we fall down towards our adventure. If we're able to land on the small piece of land we see, it's pretty obvious we can't go anywhere but down, so we continue to move downwards. As we keep falling, we catch glimpses of a few new enemies that make their debut in Mario 2. These little bundles of joy are called Shy Guys, and these jerks are the rank-and-file baddies in Wart's army. Shy guys wear masks because they're shy, apparently, but they'll have no qualms about fucking your day up. For now, though, let's ignore them and keep moving our way downwards. Once we get to the ground level, we spot a red door on the right-hand side of the screen. Pressing right on the directional pad, we move Mario towards it. Once we stand in front of the door, pressing up on the directional pad has us open the door and walk through. In the next area, we're taken to a place where the sky is blue, the grass is green, and a shy guy is waddling towards us. While we can't see his face, it's a safe bet that he means to murder us and bathe in our entrails. Now, if you've ever played any Mario game up to this point, your knee-jerk reaction is going to be to rush over to the shy guy and defeat him by jumping on top of him. I mean, it works for Koopa Troopas and Goombas, right? Well, let's test it out. Let's move over to our enemy, press the A button to jump... Huh. Well, looks like stomping does not work because now we're standing on top of the Shy Guy and it's like we're taking him for a ride. How exactly are we supposed to defeat our enemies if this is the case? That's where the game's throwing mechanic comes in. We need to either hit our enemies with an object, or we can hit enemies with each other. Let's test out the first method. If we look at the ground, we can see what looks like red tufts of grass swaying back and forth. If we jump off the Shy Guy, walk over to the red grass and press our B button, we'll bend down and then grab the grass, and then yank it out of the ground, revealing a large vegetable. This thing will surely cause some damage if we're able to hit our foes with it. Now, if we hit our B button again, we'll throw whatever object that we're holding. But it's worth noting that we'll throw it further if we're moving forward instead of just standing still. 
That shy guy is still moving towards us, and although we can't see its face, I feel like he's making crude facial expressions at us from under the mask, and that is not something we should tolerate. Move towards him, press the B button, and chuck that veggie. Ha! Excellent throw. The shy guy flies back a bit before falling off screen. Scratch one bad guy. Right behind him, though, is another shy guy making its way towards us. There's a few more patches of red grass around us as well. You know the drill, friends. Let's feed this knucklehead his vegetables. Good stuff. This right here is basic combat, but there's going to be situations where vegetables and other objects aren't around, so you may have to resort to throwing enemies at each other or getting creative by throwing enemies into pits or, my personal favorite, the quicksands of the desert areas. Does that make me a bad person to throw an enemy into quicksand and watch them struggle as they are slowly pulled under? Nah, I didn't think so. As we move forward, we'll come across a grassy hill that is way too high for us to jump on top of. Lucky for us, a vine has grown to the right of the hill, and all we need to do is climb it to get to the top of the hill. As we climb it, we'll notice four patches of red grass at the top, but we'll also notice another shy guy hanging out on top. Now, we could pull the grass up and hit the shy guy with whatever we pull up, but there's something cool up here that I want to show you without any interruption, meaning that shy guy has to go. Let's jump on top of him, hoist him over our shoulders, and chuck his sorry ass off the side of the hill. Haha, <laughs> good riddance. Now, check this out. If you pull up the grass that's on the far right-hand side of the hill, it won't be a vegetable. It's actually going to be a vial of red potion. What on earth do we do with this? Well, I am glad you asked. Find an open spot on the ground and toss the potion onto the ground. When the potion hits the ground, a red door will appear. Neat! Doors are obviously meant to be gone through, so let's do it. Move in front of the door and press up on the directional pad to walk through. Doors that emerge from potions allow us to enter the subspace. Everything in the foreground is pitch black in color and the sky is a dark and murky blue. Think of the subspace as a dark mirror dimension. The vine that was on the right is now on the left, for instance. A couple cool things can happen in the subspace. First, if there are any red patches of grass on the ground that you didn't pull up in the regular world, you can pull them up now and you'll be rewarded with a coin. Standard issue Mario coins don't exist in the normal world, so you want to collect as many as you can in the subspace while you can. There's three patches of grass here, so that means three coins. Go ahead and grab those. Nice. I'll explain the significance of coins later. Now, there's one more thing that you can potentially find in the subspace if you're lucky, and that's a mushroom. Like coins, mushrooms don't exist in the normal world, and if you can find them in the subspace, your adventure will get much easier. 
Lucky for us, there's a mushroom just sitting on top of the hill that we're on. To collect it, we just need to jump on top of it and pick it up. Awesome! So, what did that do? When you pick up a mushroom... Oh, shit, I forgot about that. You only have a few seconds in the subspace before the game kicks you back to the normal world, so when you're in it, you need to act fast. Now, as I was saying, when you pick up a mushroom in the subspace, a few things can happen. I didn't mention this before, but look to the left of the screen. There's two little red marks on the left side of your screen, and these act as your life meter, almost Legend of Zelda style. When you take a hit in this game by touching an enemy or getting hit with a projectile, you'll lose one mark off your meter. If you only have one mark left, you'll actually shrink down to a pint-sized version of yourself. The subspace mushroom will not only refill your health meter, it will add an additional mark to it, allowing you to take an additional hit before going down. These are not essential for success in this game, but they do make things a hell of a lot easier on you. Now, one more thing about potions and the subspace mushroom before we move on. When you pull a potion, you aren't always going to find a mushroom in the same spot or area that you pulled up that potion. Sometimes you have to carry the potion further forward or even backtrack a little bit in the stage before you toss it to the ground and create the subspace door. And if there happens to not to be a mushroom, well, you're out of luck. The biggest draw for me when playing Super Mario 2 was looking for interesting or out-of-the-way places to toss the potion at. Mushrooms are always in the same place, as far as I can tell, so it can be fun just trying to discover them. But more so, I liked finding the biggest patches of red grass and trying to get as many coins as I could in one go of the subspace. The whole thing encourages experimentation and exploration, and I've heard stories of gamers back when they were kids who kept track of where the mushrooms in each level were when they discovered them on notebook paper or the notes section of their instruction manual. Had I played this game seriously back in the day, I probably would have done the same thing too. Alright, there's a few more things to see in this stage before moving on, so let's get back to it. Now that we're back from our subspace journey, let's continue to our right. Suspended in the air, just a little ways, is a cherry. These little guys serve an interesting purpose. You'll notice pretty quickly that there aren't any question mark blocks around. This is why we have to find mushrooms and coins in the subspace. However, collecting enough cherries will give us access to a classic Mario power-up. That being the Starman, or the Invincibility Star. Keep an eye out for cherries because once you collect so many, a star will float up from the bottom of the screen and if you collect it, you'll turn invincible for a short period of time. It's a pretty interesting mechanic, but if I had to level any complaints or criticisms about Super Mario 2, the way you get the Invincibility Stars is kind of annoying. I don't mind collecting the cherries or anything, don't get me wrong. The whole concept encourages exploration and all that. But when you do get enough and a star floats in, there's no guarantee that you'll be in a position to grab it safely. Or grab it at all, really. 
You might even put yourself in unnecessary danger by doing so, so you'll have to weigh the risk versus the reward. There was one time I was in a vertically scrolling section going down, and the star appeared on the very edge of the screen, so there was literally no way I could grab it. Thankfully though, there aren't any areas that I remember that having a star is needed to advance or anything. All in all, collect cherries when you can, and if you happen to get a star, awesome. Just don't go banking on them. They might not be able to help you despite the effort that you're putting in. The last thing I want to touch on that's a little further up ahead is the POW block. Originally appearing in the Mario Bros. arcade game, which allowed players to flip over any enemies on the ground on their backs, the POW block in Mario 2 will wipe out all enemies on screen when you throw to the ground. It is as epic as it sounds. The whole screen will shake and everyone, and I think flying enemies, but I could be wrong, fall off the screen as the earth rumbles underneath them. Definitely keep an eye out for these bad boys. Like using a shotgun to keep the zombies at bay, the POW block will certainly get you out of a jam. As you make your way through the first area, it's hard not to notice the vibrant colors and the unique art style compared to the first Super Mario Bros. Even though we know this game is just a reskin of another, it's hard not to revel in the presentation. Over the course of the game, we'll see grassy terrain, the inside of dark and murky caves, deserts, snow-covered areas, and even places that take place in the cloudy sky. Each of the seven worlds that we'll be making our way through is unique, and they really add character and even a charm to this world. Along with the unique stages will come some unique enemies, too. While Mario 2 is the oddball in the family, it produced a decent amount of enemies that we'll see in later games and some that we still see in games today. We've talked a lot about the Shy Guys up to this point, but those little creeps are probably one of the most iconic to come out of Mario 2. They're practically a series staple now, appearing in games like Yoshi's Story, Super Mario RPG, and a bunch of the Mario Kart games, and even in the Mario Party games. My steps on land and always pick Shy Guy when we play Mario Party on the Switch. In later levels of Mario 2, we'll come across Babams. Those are the little bombs that come equipped with little feet. Sometimes you'll encounter them in a stage just by walking around, but other times you might pull them up out of the ground thinking you're grabbing a vegetable. Their explosion will cause some serious damage if you're in it. And another enemy that you come across in the desert levels is the gigantic cactus creatures known as Pokey. These guys can be of varying heights, but ultimately, they're made up of sections with a head at the top. If you blast the head or another section of the creature with an object, that section will fall away, but as long as there's at least one section left, Pokey will still come towards you. I usually dealt with Pokey by just floating over these guys with the princess whenever I had the chance. A lot of enemies in this game also appeared on the Super Mario Bros. Super Show that aired back in 1989. Tell me you guys remember that gem. That was the half-live-action, half-animated show starring Lou Albano as Mario and the late Danny Wells as Luigi. 
In the animated part of the show, the world we saw and many of the baddies that we would see were based mostly on Super Mario 2. Shy Guys, Pokies, and Babams were just a few that appeared on the show. Fry Guy, one of the bosses in Mario 2, also appeared on the show as well. While Super Mario 2 here in North America is viewed as the oddball, its influence is felt in a lot of places both new and old. It even gave birth to one baddie that I especially love beating the snot out of and can't help but admire, and that is Birdo. In Super Mario 2, it's not enough just to get to the end of a stage, you have to beat a boss in order to progress. More often than not, Birdo is the one that you're going to have to battle to move forward. You'll know Birdo is near when you hear the music that you're hearing in the background now. Birdo is a dinosaur type of creature, and it has a wide open mouth it uses to spit eggs at you. Why it would sacrifice its unborn children to take you out is unknown, but these eggs are usually going to be the thing that you will need to win the battle. Typically when you do battle with Birdo, there aren't any vegetables or objects around. So how are you supposed to take Birdo out if that's the case? When it shoots its eggs at you, you have to jump on top of the egg while it's in flight, pick it up while it's in midair, and then use that egg as a throwing weapon. Don't worry, it's a lot easier than it sounds, trust me. All it takes is composure and good timing. Wait for it to shoot the egg, jump to land on top of it, pick up the egg in midair like you would a veggie, toss it right at Birdo's face, and repeat two more times. It's not too bad, all things considered. Just be mindful of later versions of Birdo, because sometimes they'll shoot out a fireball that you cannot grab and you will take damage if you try to. Anyway, after three hits, Birdo is defeated and it'll leave behind a sort of crystal ball. This is your key to exiting the stage. Usually at the end of each stage, you'll see an eagle head protruding out of the wall, which is about as big as your character. I think the proper term for them is mask gates, and they're about as random a thing as you can get. Obviously, the imagery probably makes a little bit more sense in the confines of Doki Doki Panic, but regardless of why they exist, these gateways are our tickets out of the area and into the next one. We just need to hoist the crystal ball up over our heads, and the mask gate opens. Once we walk through it, the door closes behind us. Now, in case you've been wondering where collecting coins comes into play, it is right now. Once the stage ends, we are given a bonus chance to collect some extra lives. We'll see a slot machine in front of us, and it requires coins to spin. We can either match three of the images on screen for a bonus one-up, or if we happen to line up any cherries, we could get anywhere between one and five extra lives. It's a pretty fun incentive to try and collect coins in the subspace when we can, but at least for me, the images always seem to move too fast to be able to actually time with my button press to successfully get what I want. 
I would just smash the button on my controller over and over and let the slot machine fall where it fell. Sometimes I would get lucky and get a few extra lives. But most of the time I was left with utter disappointment. Once you run out of coins, the bonus chance ends and we're taken back to the character select screen where we decide who we want to take into the next area of the game. So that's the general gameplay loop for Super Mario Bros. 2. You start with three lives, and when you run out of lives, you're given two opportunities to continue before it's truly game over. The nice thing about losing a life is that you'll typically continue in the immediate area that you're in, so you won't normally lose a ton of progress if you screw up and go down. However, if you have to continue the game, you'll get kicked back to the very beginning of the world that you're in. Example, if you continue in World 2, Stage 3, you'll be forced to go all the way back to World 2, Stage 1. It could certainly be worse, and while I had the ability to use suspend points when playing on my Nintendo Switch, I didn't mind replaying a world all over again. They weren't too long, and ultimately I enjoyed playing through areas again just to get better and see if I could find any more secrets or more efficient ways to beat a level. While Super Mario 2 isn't rife with secret areas or anything like that, I think the level design in some spots does a great job of allowing the player to play through a level their way, by letting them take a high path versus a low path for instance, or cutting through a cave and taking a shortcut in some spots. The fact that you didn't always have to continue to the right is what really won me over when I was playing through this game. I had just as much fun beating a level as I did exploring it, and that sense of wonder and discovery is ultimately what made me a Mario fan in general as I got older. So, imagine my surprise when I came across my very first locked red door in the next stage. The door looked unassuming enough, but it had a big silver lock on it. Well, if there's a lock, there has to be a key somewhere. The first key that you'll come across is at the bottom of a warp pipe. And to be clear, the pipes in Mario 2 aren't the traditional green ones. These ones almost look like white and red jars, but if you jump on one and crouch, you'll sometimes be able to go into them and enter a new area. When you enter this particular jar, you'll fall a little ways and see a large key just chilling on a platform. But most players will probably hesitate a moment here, though. Surrounding the key are three scary-looking masks that are definitely out of place. What could these mean? Touching them doesn't do anything, so maybe they're there for just decoration and to make the key look more important. Unfortunately, that is not the case, and anyone who's ever played Mario 2 knows what's going to happen here. Once you grab the key and hoist it over your head, one of the masks flashes and it comes off the wall. This mask is called a Fanto, and it's sort of a guardian to keys in this game. When you have a key in your possession, a Fanto will fly towards you and relentlessly pursue you. Even when you go into other areas, Fanto will follow you so long as you have that key. It is just like the Terminator. 
It cannot be bargained with. It cannot be reasoned with. It does not feel pity or remorse or fear. And it absolutely will not stop ever until you are dead. If, however, you drop the key, the Fanto will float away and leave you alone, so that is one way to keep yourself safe. But the Fanto should be feared. The way it moves across the screen is almost erratic enough that it can be very hard to time jumping over it or ducking under it, so you either need to drop the key often to keep it at bay, or you need to run your little ass off and get that key to the locked door pronto. Some gamers I've talked to spoke about how the floating mask would scare them as kids and make them not want to pick up the keys at all. And to be completely honest with you all, I was one of those kids. Anytime I knew I had to grab that key, I felt a tinge of fear creep its way up my spine. Sometimes when I would go to grab it, I felt like Indiana Jones about to grab the golden idol in Raiders of the Lost Ark. But where Indy was relatively confident and sure of himself, I was not. Panic always set in when I grabbed that key, and I always seemed to hold my breath any time I was being chased by that mask. Any time I made it to the door and walked through unscathed, that's when I remembered that I could breathe again. So as we start to wind it down, my friends, I have to say... Super Mario Bros. 2 still feels like a weird game to me, and I don't think that will ever change. But that's not inherently a bad thing. When you take a step back and look at the big picture, there's a game here that features some fun level design that allows the player a measure of freedom, thanks to the ability to backtrack and thanks to some awesome stage verticality. The game also has a measure of replayability. Not only was it fun using the potions in different areas to track down all of the mushrooms and maximize your coins for the slot machine, you had different characters to play as, and each one was just different enough that the gameplay experience was different when playing with each of them. Playing through this game with each character felt like its own gameplay experience. But for me, it really wasn't until I played Super Mario 2 that I had a deeper appreciation for it, especially when it came to things that persisted from it. I'm mostly talking about some of the enemies that would go on to be series staples, but more so when you look at Mario and Luigi themselves. This was the first game that really solidified their looks as we see them today, and this was the beginning of Luigi getting his own identity through his superior jumping ability and how tall he was compared to his brother. I do think the ending of Mario 2 was pretty lackluster, though. The final battle with Wart wasn't super difficult once I realized I needed to chuck vegetables into his open mouth, and it was revealed that everything was a dream after all as we get to see Mario wake up in his bed for a moment before going back to sleep. While I haven't completed a ton of Mario games yet, the ones I have are usually bombastic affairs when they end. This one, eh, not so much. But regardless, Super Mario 2, whether players enjoy this game or not, is an essential part of the Mario franchise, and it really helped establish its identity. We can very easily still see the influences today. Although, I do wonder at times if Wart is ever going to come back in some capacity. 
he has been oddly absent since this game first came out. I do prefer Bowser over Wart, but I wouldn't mind seeing him again at some point. For now, though, I'll settle with force feeding him his vegetables. So if you've somehow never played Super Mario Bros. 2 here in North America, or Super Mario USA, which was the North American game ported back to Japan, I think you should give it a try. There's plenty of ways for you to try it, and I think it'll be well worth your time. Whether or not this game will grab you is really dependent on what you're looking for in a platformer, but as someone who doesn't do platformers all that often, I have to say that I had a pretty good time with this. Will I ever go back to Subcon and throw around some vegetables again? Eh, maybe. Still, I'm glad I finally played this game through to the end and got to experience it firsthand. If nothing else, my biggest takeaway playing Super Mario Bros. 2 is that vegetables are indeed a powerful thing, especially when you chuck them full blast at somebody's face. There you have it, my friends. This has been episode 49 of the Retro Wildlands, Super Mario Bros. 2 for the Nintendo Entertainment System. Thank you very much for listening to the show today. Mario 2 will always be the odd Mario out for me personally, but I think that should be viewed as a badge of honor. While you can make countless arguments as to how this game really doesn't fit with the rest of the franchise, you can't deny the influence it's had on many of the Mario games and properties that have come after it. And even if Nintendo did just reskin another game for us Westerners in an effort to give us a slightly easier game, I really think Nintendo took a big chance in doing so. Ultimately, it paid off, and I'm glad we got Super Mario 2 for what it was, and I'm glad I can finally say that I've experienced it. Seriously, if you've somehow avoided this game for one reason or another, I implore you to give it a try. Whether it's the original on the NES, the remaster that was included in Super Mario All-Stars for the Super Nintendo, or Super Mario Advance on the Game Boy Advance, there's something special here, and you should do your absolute best to experience it, even if you only try it once. If you like the show today and you want to show it and myself some support, please consider subscribing to the Retro Wildlands on your preferred podcasting platform. While I try my best to always be working on the next episode of the show, life can get in the way and it can be a bit before my next show drops. I am just one guy who's trying to make a quality podcast while balancing my work life, family life, and my gaming hobby. Subscribing to the Retro Wildlands will notify you the instant I publish something new, and you can get right back into the Wildlands with me. Now, if you really like what I'm trying to do here, and you have a spare minute of your time, I would really appreciate it if you gave the show a good review. You can leave a star rating on Spotify, but you can also leave a written review on platforms like iTunes, Podchaser, and Podbean, which is the service I use to host the show. I would really appreciate it if you could spare a few minutes and leave the show a good review, but 
you are under no obligation to do so, my friends. As always, just the fact that you're even listening to my podcast is much more than I could possibly ask for, so thank you again for just being here. So, what's coming up next? Our next episode will be our 50th episode, and it's a pretty big milestone, all things considered. Last episode, I dropped a few hints as to what game I was going to cover for our big 5-0. I will admit, I think I embellished the length of the game when I mentioned that I needed to replay it. I actually finished the game already over the Christmas holiday and captured most of my thoughts about it. It took me about 11-ish hours all told. A few of you listening tried guessing what the game was, and I will say, one of you mentioned this game, so good on you for figuring it out. What could this game be, you might be wondering? Well, keep an eye out on our social media pages, my friend. I will reveal all in good time. I'm anticipating this episode being a pretty beefy one, and I'm really looking forward to creating an awesome show for you. It's an amazing game that really means a lot to me, and it helped further define me, my taste as a gamer, and further showed me just what video games were capable of, especially how it used the console hardware to create a memorable experience for the player. I hope you decide to join us again in the Wildlands, my friend, when our 50th episode drops. It's going to be a fun time, and I cannot think of better company to have when I finally sit down by the campfire and share my thoughts and experiences with a video game that will go down in history as one of the best cinematic experiences ever. Until then, my friends, my name is Nomad, and you can find me roaming the retro wildlands. <laughs>